Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com. It's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Evergreen is Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Today, I wanted to talk about Florida. In last year's election, it finally joined the Battalion of States, now allowing legal access to marijuana for medical use. Considering the long, bumpy road toward normalizing medical cannabis policy in Florida, the passage of Amendment 2 was a huge victory. What most people don't know is that Florida was actually one of the first states to make marijuana legal out of medical necessity thanks to a 1976 ruling that set a precedent for use of medical marijuana for treating glaucoma. That ruling led to the Therapeutic Research Act, which allowed a federal research program to provide a handful of patients with marijuana. New Mexico was the first state to actually allow patients to join the program, but Florida became the second to join it in 1978. Over the next dozen years or so, 33 other states followed suit. The Department of Health and Rehabilitative Services ran the program. They would procure cannabis grown at the University of Mississippi from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, or NIDA, and would arrange for certified pharmacies to dispense the highest grade cannabis to their patients. Due to the number of drug convictions overturned with the medical defense, Florida had the best legal protections for patients. So much so that Key West was home to the nation's second medical cannabis co-op. All of that changed during the presidency of George H.W. Bush, whose capstone agenda included the war on drugs. As a result, the program stopped accepting new patients in 1992. Most states allowed the law to remain on the books. Some states like Florida made several attempts to repeal and reinstate patients' rights to use cannabis out of medical necessity. As of 1999, the medical necessity defense was no longer enough to prevent two AIDS patients from being convicted for possession of marijuana. Despite winning district appeal to overturn their conviction, a Supreme Court judge ruled that the medical necessity defense sends the wrong message about the drug. When they finally went to jail, Florida residents were then on notice that they could no longer use that defense to protect them from a conviction for possessing marijuana. That finally changed when Florida legislators passed SB 1030, the low THC Charlotte's Web medical bill, then, in November last year, voters finally had their say with the passage of Amendment 2. But despite the victory, the battle to normalize medical marijuana policy is far from over in Florida, as our guest explains. But first, Dr. Brian Donner has our Medical Marijuana Minute. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? Thanks, Snowden. I practice clinically in Pennsylvania, where medical marijuana is obviously relatively new. I get a number of questions from my patients every day, but one of the ones I hear most frequently is, what should I do if my doctor doesn't believe in medical marijuana? My first response to this question is to explain why doctors are, are reluctant to recommend or even talk about it in some cases. The first main reason, I think, really has to do with the fact that medical cannabis or marijuana is still considered a Schedule I controlled substance by the DEA. 
This means essentially that they consider it to have no medical utility at all, and it's obviously thus federally illegal. This holds true even in states that have a medical cannabis program. It's very important for doctors to understand that they are not at risk for losing their DEA license whenever they do certify or recommend for medical cannabis. That distinction between prescribing versus recommendation and certification is very important. Another important reason may have to do with the fact that most doctors really are not provided with a baseline knowledge or understanding about marijuana and how the effect it has on the human body. Most medical schools don't teach it, and we do not have any mandated physician education that we are provided with. Being able to understand the science behind medical cannabis is imperative. Last but definitely not least, there's obviously some social and political baggage that goes with marijuana. There's been a cultural stigma for a long time, and this is obviously hard to overcome, especially for those who aren't aware of the emerging science behind the movement. The best advice I can offer to patients whose doctors don't see the value of medical marijuana is present them with some evidence that medical marijuana is safe and effective. Science is something that most doctors respond to well and that we can use as a tool. A great place to start is somewhere like PubMed.gov, which is a national database that's maintained by the National Institutes of Health. A quick search there with the keyword marijuana will reveal more than 24,000 clinical studies and peer-reviewed articles that are available for their review. The best advice that I can give to doctors is to become educated about medical marijuana now and before they advise patients for or against it. As providers, we have an obligation to understand all of the treatment options that are available to our patients, and this includes medical marijuana. It's only a matter of time before federal law will catch up with patient demand. Doctors who learn about medical cannabis now will be ahead of the curve, and that's so important because their patients expect and need their guidance and input on this issue. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back again next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Thanks, Snowden. Back to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Donner. We'll see you next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. So let's get started. Today, we have a returning guest. Dimitri Downing is a former prosecutor who has played a leading role in the development of medical marijuana industry policy since 2012. Since then, he has used his deep understanding of the nuances of the emerging industry to help guide state ballot measures and legislation. Through his company PolicyQuake, he's lobbied in multiple states for pro-industry changes in the laws and has helped develop numerous dispensaries and cultivation operations. In 2016, he started the Medical Industry Trade Association, otherwise known as MEDA. He is also a founding member of the National Indian Cannabis Coalition. He's working on many projects in different states to help advance the interests of the cannabis industry. And he's also the founder of a nationwide cannabis convention franchise, which began as the Southwest Cannabis Conference and Expo couple of years ago, and that has become a leading educational conference brand in multiple states. The next incarnation of that conference takes place this week in Florida, where, which is called the Southeast Cannabis Conference and Expo, and that happens to be where he's calling from today. So welcome back, Dimitri. Hi, how are you doing, Sutton? How are things going? <laughs> things are good. I'm a little raspy today, so forgive my voice. But um, it's great to talk to you, and I know you're incredibly busy because you have the conference coming up this week, this weekend, and so I'm really grateful that you were able to take some time away today. So how's it going with the planning of the conference in Florida? It's good. I'm here actually in Miami right now. It's raining quite a bit. I don't know how much it rains here in June, but we have it all set up. I mean, it's all on seccexpo.com. Um, anybody can go and sign up and participate in the conference. We have over 100 vendors, 75 plus speakers, tons of information, a lot of interesting speakers, including some of those first patients uh, that received uh, medical marijuana from the federal government for decades uh, are speaking. Uh, Rick, well, there Ricky Williams, uh, former Miami Dolphin, Montel Williams, now a Miami resident who is a huge advocate. A number of other individuals are, are presenting information. Uh, we've been setting up uh, uh, this for a few months now, and uh, it's going to happen Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Coming up so quickly. I'm, I've been to several of your conferences, and they're actually quite amazing. Um, so you also have uh, Montel Williams, you said. That's fantastic. And um, a lot of different uh, athletes from the NFL um, and other sports franchises. Isn't that right? 
Yeah, we uh, we have this thing called Pro Athletes Pro Cannabis. This is a gathering of athletes uh, on Friday night of this week uh, at the Hilton next to the conference center. And uh, that's a discussion about the uh, medical marijuana policies of the different uh, leagues, specifically focused on the NFL and uh, and the NBA. Uh, those have been leagues where, you know, for quietly, secretly behind the scenes, these players have been using medical marijuana for pain relief and uh, relaxation for decades. And, well, oftentimes not getting in trouble for it, but sometimes you have the case like Ricky Williams, Heisman Trophy winner, who, you know, exemplified the greatest uh, level of individual excellence that someone can achieve in the United States, Heisman Trophy, uh, in the athletic realm. Um, and uh, uses medical marijuana and then gets his career, uh, his NFL professional career tainted uh, because of the antiquated policies of the NFL. You know, yeah. for him, it's a it's kind of a vindicating moment of sorts because if it wasn't for the NFL medical marijuana policy, he could have been, you know, the greatest running back of all time, potentially. So you know, it's a very fascinating story that they, they have. And this is, uh, as I've come to find out, find out that, you know, more than 50% and up to 90% of the NFL and NBA players use medical marijuana as a pain relief uh, medication, just straight up pain relief. Yeah, it, I, I actually spoke with uh, Marvin Washington on this show last week, and he was telling me a bit about uh, some of the progress. They're going to have some news to report, I understand, um, both this coming weekend and when the New York conference happens, um, they'll be in New York and able to announce. But yeah, there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes with the NFL. And, you know, I, I, their policy of drug use has been just so debilitating for so many years. So I'm really glad to see that you're, you're showcasing their efforts this weekend. And that event is on Friday, is that right? Yeah, Friday is the investor forum and uh, and the educational forum, and then Saturday and Sunday, uh, that's what we call an add-on. Friday night is the pro athletes pro cannabis. Uh, that's kind of a celebration of sorts, um, but uh, also educational. And then Saturday and Sunday is the main conference. Everybody gets together, networks, and talks, and learns, and discusses, and shares information all day long. And uh, it's, it's certainly interesting in Florida. I've done a lot of media here in Florida, and um, I think it's helped me realize that what's most needed and what these conferences offer the most is a forum for people to discuss their ideas, to share ideas, to develop the right language and framework with which to create and shape the puzzle that is becoming, uh, forming into a finished puzzle, which it actually yeah. has no no determined outcome, but it is a puzzle and it's being put together. It's a fascinating way to do a puzzle. Um, uh, what is becoming the American, Florida, Arizona, California medical marijuana and adult use marijuana system. And so, you know, n there is no wizard behind the scenes developing this puzzle that we call the, the, the now medical adult use marijuana market. Uh, it's a number of individuals. Sometimes it's money oriented as we've seen here in, 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 uh, in Florida with lobbyists and stuff, but most of the time it's people grasping at straws, reaching into the dark, using whatever education they have and regarding whatever business or regulatory framework they're experienced with, uh, trying to formulate policy, write initiatives, and create marketplaces that you know are, have never been created before. And the more that you learn about what has been happening, uh, you can combine that with what you imagine could happen and come up with what will happen well with what you can encourage others to make happen. And then you got to deal with all their other realities. So it's like, you know, going to college, you know, you're never going to know what a university has to offer or university system or university educational system, unless you step onto campus and audit some classes. So that's kind of what these for these forums, these conferences, these expos have become is, you know, a lot of people are there to network with their existing businesses and to make money. Um, off of their packaging and they want to meet dispensary owners and they want to meet CBD people and they want to meet consumers and purchasers. And that's all fine and dandy. And that's a very important part of it. It's what keeps the gears turning. 
money keeps the gears turning. Um, but um, but the most significant part that occurs is the education of the individuals, the citizens, the taxpayers, the entrepreneurs, the startups, the dreamers, the the people that want to be involved in policy. And if they keep their eyes open, they talk, they listen, they listen, they talk, they ask questions. They can start to see what's going on. And uh, and what you see that's going on is you have a whole economic structure being created in Florida, Arizona, California, the United States, Spain, Mexico, that nobody is in control. Nobody has an absolute understanding of what it should look like. And it's just a matter of uh, perception, opinion, you know, communication, agenda, money, you know, and these all things are are, are, are things that you need to be aware of and being get, get engaged in. So that's the cool thing about our conference. If, if you want to ask me the, the, most, the coolest thing about these conferences, it's that. It's the seeing people uh, gain the, the building blocks or the, of what these puzzles might look like and how to build puzzles. So. Yeah, well, and, and they're, they're quite comprehensive, too. I mean, you've got um, two, well, three full days of, of uh, seminars and workshops and speakers and you know that's just in addition to the expo where there are so many people that just mill around and meet one another and there are media people on the scene and you know yeah and it's it's impressive it really is so if anybody listening is in Florida um, it's definitely going to be worth checking out this weekend but you're also going to be coming back to Arizona I think in October you have yeah. another one in Southern California this year correct uh, no, we're not doing San Diego this year. We're going to wait until next year to do that again. Okay. Uh, because the models and conferences shift so quickly as well because we have to adopt to what the state regulations are uh, state by state, our vendors do. And it's right. the vendors that keep these things going. So, you know, our next one is in October, and that will be the largest medical marijuana conference in the history of Arizona. We have President Fox coming uh, in in October to Arizona. That'll He's be fantastic. Wow. Yeah. And we might have Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, it's, it's just going to get crazy. Uh, so it's going to be pretty exciting what happens in October at the Phoenix Convention Center in Arizona. And, uh, you know, this, this event is good. Um, but, uh, again, the, the most important thing is uh, knowledge acquisition and teaching people how to learn. And when you're taking something like medical and adult use marijuana, which is out of the black market, the only people who knew how to, there's two types of people, those who knew how to produce it, distribute it, and sell it illegally, which are basically criminals. Uh, basically, you know, people who did not want to abide by the rule of law of a society. Um, all sorts of different people in there. And then, of course, you had, you know, the mom and pop, you know, kind of, fun-loving, very moralistic or very ethically oriented people that we knew in high school, people from the 60s. You know, there's people in Humboldt County that just grew and sold, and they were called criminals, but really they are good citizens. Right. Uh, the criminals are referred to as the ones who have no ethical and moral boundaries. But so you have all these people who knew how to produce, yeah. distribute, and sell marijuana, and now you have systems being set up state by state and around the country and people have no idea how to get involved. People don't even know what's going on. They don't even know what questions to ask. And here at these conferences, you start to learn how to ask your questions. And as you learn how to ask your questions, you can start uh, coming up with answers. And if you, you know, that, that's what the, you know, the acquisition of knowledge begins with the ability to ask the right questions. So right. that's what we're trying to help people, people do with these things. Um, yeah. And, that, you know, and then that, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I just. That could be said also for the policymakers as well. I mean, people who are actually trying to shape how these laws pan out after the election, I mean, often they have absolutely no clue either. They're, 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 they're so in the dark. I talk to so many policymakers, and I drag them into dispensaries. I drag them into cultivations. I explain to them what's happening. I explain to them what happened on the black market. I used to be a prosecutor on the border. So I know a lot about the transportation. I was a prosecutor between where the cartels dropped it off at the border, and I prosecuted people who traded and shipped it to uh, Phoenix and Tucson and Casa Grande. And then, so I learned from them what was on either side of that. And then, and most of the traders were just, you know, entrepreneurs who found themselves in a trade route. Somebody offered them $10,000 to drive a car of marijuana from the border to Casa Grande. Four-hour trip, you know, most <laughs> teenager 
says, what the hell, you know, there's some, what's in the trunk. I don't care, you know? Yeah. But, uh, so, um, so uh, I forgot my point. What was the question there? <laughs> well, I was just saying that, uh, you know, the, the policymakers really just have absolutely oh, yeah. no clue. Oh, yeah. But you were, but okay, so you brought up an interesting thing, and this is something I wanted to ask you about too. Having been a prosecutor, and back then, while you were prosecuting these individuals, I mean, and like you said, a lot of them were just entrepreneur kids who, you know, got an offer they couldn't refuse, and, you know, I'd say a good half of them wound up in jail, but you'd know better than I would on that. But when you were prosecuting these people, I mean, did you, were you aware, um, were you aware that this drug was really not as bad as uh, the DEA would have you believe? No. Um, I had a, you know, as a prosecutor, you don't want your prosecutor, the problem with prosecution, you, you don't want your prosecutor gauging the importance of whether or not something, a crime should be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you do. Um, you know, you want your legislative branch determining what the agenda of the people are, because the people have no control over the prosecutors in most jurisdictions. Um, and like, for example, in Pima County and Maricopa County, we elect the, the prosecutor. But I doubt many people vote for the prosecutor based on, you know, what they know the prosecutor is aggressively or not aggressively uh, uh, prosecuting. So you're not encouraged and trained to evaluate the, the moral gravity of the crime um, when you're pursuing justice, whether or not you think somebody did it. So somebody comes before you with a consumption crime, a transportation crime, a distribution crime. You just say, did they or did they did not do it? Um, and then, you know, once you know that for sure, then you get into the sentencing recommendations. And any prosecutor tells you that that's not, that's just an art and not a science. That's why we end up with these mandatory minimums and stuff, because prosecutors take the discretion. But they really aren't, it's a really tough question. And, and myself as a prosecutor, I never thought, I never spent that much time thinking about it. Um, you know, I, I focus mostly on domestic violence and sexual abuse prosecution. There was a little bit of, of, of you know, uh, DUIs and a lot of minor consumption, transportation, uh, marijuana-related uh, crimes. But, you know, you just pushed them through. You know, you didn't stop to think about the, the consequences. But that's, that becomes a question about law and order and crime in general and the role of prosecutors. Do you want them stopping to think, well, murder isn't, you know, that important or rape isn't that important or do you want them just being told that you know when the legislature says you need to give somebody 25 years for rape for the first time rape and then obey that you know what I'm saying yeah uh, well then that takes the burden off of the prosecutor for um for the the consequences of the the convict okay I, you know i don't have any pretend to have any grand answers to the criminal justice system one thing i've learned is that there is no such thing as justice uh, at least we think we think we have a good system, and it's the best we've created so far. But it's entirely inadequate. And anybody who has ever worked in the justice system who thinks that there is justice, I think is fooling themselves. And that's one of the reasons why I got out, um, because uh, I tried to do defense work for like six months after doing prosecuting. And for those six months, I found myself becoming a collection agent, uh, basically looking for money and not thinking about justice. Right. Um, and not thinking about what it meant. As a prosecutor, at least you get, you know, you have the power to control the situation. Should you take the time to remember that, you know, this case is the most significant thing that's happening in somebody's life and there's some humanity involved, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you get 1,000 cases a year. You know, you're pushing through 17 different cases a day. The humanity disappears and, and it's just another number. And so, um, you know, which is good and which is bad right. because, you know, you know, you get a prosecutor with a grudge, you know, because of the, the humanity, they don't particularly like this person, you know, then, you know, you, you'd rather they just be just a number. You know? <laughs> so, so um, but no, but it doesn't, I honestly thought when I, on August 8, 2012, when I started into the medical marijuana world, I thought this was, because I was sitting in, I left prosecution in 2010, government relations. Uh, for a year and a half there, was in the uh, city council, uh, working with the city council on economic development in Tucson. Saw this medical marijuana system get enacted by the state of Arizona. From a local level, we had to deal with the zoning restrictions and the municipal reactions to how we were going to regulate medical marijuana. 
you know, where it could be produced, uh, where it could be sold, et cetera, cultivation limits, et cetera. Uh, so I saw from that perspective. And when all the advocates came through the office, I honestly thought medical marijuana was just a clever way that hippies had figured out how to get high. <laughs> I thought that yeah, these guys really, really came up with something here because, uh, you know, it seems like a lot of people support medical marijuana and the state's going to let it happen. Then on August 8, 2012, when the state let it happen, and I did some research with the DEA and ICE and Homeland Security, a bunch of people, and, and asked and found out that AZ Post, the Arizona-based police officers, were no longer going to enforce marijuana laws in regards to transportation, distribution, consumption with medical marijuana cards and allow for these licensing systems, and the attorney general was going to leave it alone and protect it. Well, then, you know, at that point, it was kind of obvious that because federal law enforcement doesn't act with a lot of backups, local backup, that the, the drug war versus medical marijuana was over, and there was going to be a lot of a big industry developed here. So I stopped everything I was doing, and I got involved, and I got involved for the money. I got involved because I thought this would be a good career move and, you know, a little bit of reflection. Okay, marijuana is not all that harmful. Don't recommend it, but it's not all that harmful. I can do this. Um, and then over two-year August 8th through uh, the end of 2015, you know, I started to realize and started to watch and started to be educated by hundreds and thousands of marijuana patients uh, as to what marijuana really was. And I was, I've had a 180-degree turn, 100% uh, wrong I was. It really is a drug. It really is a medicine. People have a right to it. That right should be protected, and people should medicate how they choose to. Uh, and that's a relationship that the government has no business in. This qualifying condition thing is crap. It should be marijuana as a medicine. Uh, an individual, uh, the government has no role getting involved between the patient and the doctor. And whether or not a patient goes to a, a a medicine man, a shaman, a Rasta man, an Eastern man, a Western man, wherever they go to for their medical advice, it's none of the government's business. That leads to adult use to medicate every, any way that you want to. That's where I stand as a medic, as an advocate, and, and I can firmly believe that, and I believe I can prove that if I have the right science, but I can definitely prove it empirically from my own experience that marijuana is a medicine. People have a 100% right to it, and that's the world I want to live in. Yeah. Um, so. You know, that, that's where I was wrong, and now I'm right. And that's why I, I spend so much time, and I'm pretty good at convincing, uh, you know, conservatives, Republicans, businessmen who generally were opposed to medicinal marijuana that uh, it needs to be supported, legalized, and we need to have programs across all 50 states and all the hundreds of countries so that we make sure that people have uh, unconditional access to this wonderful plant that has tremendous medicinal benefits. But... Uh, yeah, you know, old dogs can learn new tricks, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely they can. I, I mean, so. it, what you say is fascinating because, you know, not only not only should people, yeah. it's, a, it's an appropriate medicine for whatever people need to use it for, but not only that, it happens to be safer than Tylenol or even alcohol. And, uh, you know, which absolutely. is why it's so silly that, and science has proven it. Dimitri, I mean, we do have the science that proves this. And yeah, and, and we need more, you know, I mean, we need more. That's yeah, just, uh, of course, we, we need more to convince yeah. the powers that be. But we certainly have enough. Um, we certainly have enough evidence that there is a viable medical use and a low potential for abuse. We know that already. And yet the DEA just absolutely refuses to acknowledge that and take it out of Schedule 1. Whether they deschedule it or reschedule it is irrelevant at that point. It should not be Schedule 1 by law. Yeah, I could not absolutely, I, could, I absolutely could not agree with you more. I'm 100%. I am a little bit uh, qualified in the adult use thing. Um, I'm a yogi. Um, I do a lot of yoga, and it's helped me realize that any need or any want or any dependency, whether it's on caffeine or alcohol or prescription drugs, Tylenol or marijuana, that you should really ask yourself, why do you need it? Why do you want it? Why are you medicating? And and try to do your best to free yourself from any sort of uh, any need or want or, or medication. But, you know, 
uh, some people need to medicate because they got back pain and they always will have back pain. Right. So, you know, you got to leave that alone. But uh, so the or adult use some people I'm, feel it's difficult to relax or whatever without that kind of a medicine, you know, but it, and, it, yeah. And there, therein you need to ask yourself, why are you living a life where you need to relax? What is happening? You know, like mm-hmm. is there, is there death in a loved one? Do you need to have a drink of alcohol? Do you need to have a, a, a joint? Is that, is that because it's something that a life event occurred that resulted in stress that you need to relax? Or are you on a daily basis needing to medicate and to relax, which is understandable, but you should really start thinking about why you need to relax. Mm-hmm. And regardless, the government has no business in this relationship. The government has no business keeping people from these choices. And that's the most significant thing about medical marijuana uh, that I have learned is that, uh, you know, I'm hoping for a world that, that one day uh, has these freedoms, the freedom of knowing that it's a medicine, the freedom of patient doctors being able to be, make their own decisions, the freedom of patients being able to choose their own doctors, and then living in a culture where people understand marijuana as medicine, living under, in a culture where people understand the caffeine that they drink in the morning is really medicine. Mm-hmm. They're really medicating themselves to get through the day at the pace they need to, and, and, and that's the truth of the matter. And they should probably figure out what it is in their lifestyle that's causing them to consume so much caffeine rather than, uh, you know, just go on about their business like it's a great thing. But that's just my philosophy. Um, But I also have thought through that pretty carefully. And it will lead to eventually lead to uh, unconditional, uh, unrestricted use uh, by adults as they see fit um, for marijuana. Uh, but it will also lead to something that the mainstream culture of the United States can agree on, and that's we don't want to live in a society where anybody is um, addicted or dependent or focusing their energies excessively by choice on anything, whether it's tobacco, caffeine, alcohol, marijuana, or anything that might uh, become a crutch uh, for you know individual excellence. You know what I'm saying? So, right. And I I really, really, I I say that to my Republican conservative friends, my business friends, and they're like, well, why isn't that the way the world is right now? I'm like, because you guys won't compromise. (laughs) Right, right. You know, which, I mean, legalizing marijuana for adult use and for adults to make their own choices about how they medicate themselves for whatever ails them you know, really seems like that would be more of a conservative platform. I mean, laissez-faire government. Um, so why are they advocating for so much control over this? And, you know, then that kind of begs the question about um, policymakers and election contributions, which is a whole other conversation. But that kind of leads me back to Florida because... Oh, yeah, Florida. There are so <laughs> The topic of today's show. So there are so many things that have, are are so many changes with marijuana policy since 1976. And you mentioned that you've got a couple of people who were on the original glaucoma program in Florida. Is that right? Um, I don't know what they were on there for, but we have, I forget his name. It's on secexpo.com, but he's coming to speak about uh, his experience with the federal program. He's one of the original guys who was receiving uh, marijuana. Well, what about him? Right. So, well, the Associated Press had, had originally asked the agency for that was administering that program back in the 1970s and 80s and all of that. Um, it's, it's evolved over the years. However, they went back and asked for, you know, some of the records of um, how the program was administered and all of that. Well, after George H.W. Bush took took office, a lot of those records just simply disappeared. And then they didn't really start keeping records again until 2005, until 2011. So the fact that you're going to be talking to someone who's been a part of the program, which, by the way, started in 1976. I mean, think about it. That was so many years ago. And the federal government sanctioned the program, set up the University of Mississippi growing for the patients of this program. And the only federal records that you could find anywhere um, show or between 2005 and 2011. And it said that, you know, they estimated that, you know, maybe there were, um, 
100 or so pounds of marijuana distributed during that time. But um, I read an article recently where um, several of the patients had talked to the reporter who wrote the article saying that um, they've been on the program since 1976 and combined they've received probably a total of 584 pounds from the federal government over the years. And if you, if you just think about that for a moment, it's, it's a conundrum. I mean, if the federal government has a patent on use of medical marijuana for neurological purposes, and then you look at the federal government sanctioning a program that has been in existence since 1976 in Florida, um, among other states, um, you know, over all of that time, and then you look at the federal policy of, uh, you know, the scheduling, Schedule 1, meaning it has no me known medical use, it is such a, a bucket of hypocrisy, it's not even funny. But Florida, since it enacted its first medical marijuana laws in 1976, they've made it legal, they've made it illegal, they've made it legal, they've made it illegal, and it's been just a series of court events where you know rulings were overturned or rulings were reinstated and patients were you know set free out of jail because somebody overturned their medic their conviction for using it for medical purposes and then the next the next court case actually you know went back and arrested people i mean it's ridiculous where are we now that we've passed um amendment two is passed the charlotte's web act was passed and now you've got a situation in Florida where the legislature's just generally fighting it. What do you know about this? Well, you know, there's a lot of, so, so, so unfortunately for, you know, the, the advocates of, of marijuana, and I'll just tell you the truth, you know, it's, it's now about the industry and about money interests shaping policies. Mm. Um, so what happens is you have lobbyists up there who are trying to protect the interests of those seven license holders, which is sad but true. Can you blame them? No. It's kind of, you know, the nature of the game. It's kind of the nature of the system. That's why, you know, I would have voted for Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump because they don't like lobbyists. But <laughs> lobbyists really, you know, there's good lobbyists and then there's a lot of bad lobbyists. And, and this is uh, coming from a lobbyist. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. But I've seen the inside. Yeah. And what happens is that so, you know, you have those seven license holders here in uh, in Florida who are aware that if it goes back to the executive rulemaking process or or actually the only amendment they were looking at is legislative was actually to increase their their uh, their number of dispensaries. Um, but they're going to do everything they can to control the process because they want to control, you know, who makes the money off marijuana, which is them. Um, and you have the politicians who uh, generally don't know much about marijuana industry, marijuana law, and, and they know a little bit about economics and business, but they do know that their lobbyist friends show up who've been contributing to their campaigns, who've been putting together fundraisers, fundraisers for them for decades, and, and often help them get elected. And those guys pick up clients like, you know, individuals who might have one of these licenses, but it happens in every state. Um, and then they push for certain laws and rules that benefit those individuals who already have. Um, and, you know, whether or not that kind of system implodes, it's not limited just to marijuana. I mean, how many bars should there be? How many restaurants should there be? What should the licensing fee be? What should the proper enforcement division be? What should the improper enforcement mechanisms be? What should the punishment be for those who don't participate in the as a seven license holder. What happens to the guy who produces in the Everglades and sells in Daytona Beach? You know, is he going to go to jail or is he going to get fined? You know, so these are questions that they have no answers to. They've never explored before. So they're sitting up there thinking to themselves, well, you know, the easiest answer is to limit the number of licenses because that kind of keeps the market size lower. But that's a total misconception. They just have no idea. And then they talk to the lobbyist who says, well, let me manipulate the situation here benefit my client and the politician doesn't even know what's going on and the lobbyist ends up twisting the new rules and stuff to benefit those who have or those who have enough to pay uh the lobbyists I, just lobbyists are a dirty thing i mean truly it's crazy 
So in Florida, you have that situation right now where you have, and I don't have firsthand information. I'm just going off of what I've seen happen in other states, and um, and we know happens through uh, through different methods and stuff. But it, in Florida, it's, it's pretty, you know, uh, well known. When you Google lobbyists in Florida and marijuana, you can see the, what's going on in Florida, and and it, and it's sad because it limits competition, it limits entrepreneurs, and it limits opportunity that limits innovation it keeps it might keep the prices up if these guys form like a guild and 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 and, and work together to keep the prices up which would be crazy because that would be like a rico violation but who knows if the feds will do anything about it right. um so i mean there's a lot of a lot of unanswered questions so florida's a little bit of in turmoil but that again that's why i tell people um learn talk to people, learn the language, learn about industry, learn about economics, learn about what could be, learn about what's happening in other states, talk to people from other states, ask what's happened there, ask what's their experience. So then they can go back to the executive in the next month when the executive is going to issue rules and write editorials, expose this for what it is. You know, uh, I mean, eventually, you know, somebody's going to make a decision and, you know, they make a decision based upon, you know, their uh, American ideals of free enterprise and competition, or do they make a decision based on what lobbyists told them to do what, and they don't know what they're doing? You know, they make a decision based on, and these are all economic decisions. These are all industry decisions. These aren't, you know, pro or con marijuana decisions, you know, that are, that are, that are happening. So Florida is a little bit up in the air and right now is the time to get involved and, and try to impact the process. Um, can it be impacted? I don't know. Money is a very powerful thing. Um, you know, influence is a very powerful thing. For all we know, one of those seven license holders is organizing the entire group and hiring a lobbyist, and that lobbyist is in direct communication with the governor, and the governor is in direct communication with the senator, and that senator is under restrictions to do this or that. That, you know, that could be happening. I have no evidence of that whatsoever. Um, but if that's happening, you know, the, the voice of the people are you know, might never get heard, but all you can do is keep trying, you know? Yeah. How, so, and I, I haven't asked you this because the last time we talked was actually um, the day before the election. <laughs> how, how do you feel the temperature is in Washington right now regarding marijuana policy? Well, um, again, I, I think actually it's, um, well, there's, you know, Trump is, a, is an unknown. Uh, nobody can claim to really understand what he's going to do. <laughs> with policy. To say the but least. There's, yeah, there's a lot of factors, like the Rohrbacher FAR amendment uh, that defunded activities of the Department of Justice in regards to uh, prosecuting and pursuing cases where there's a medical marijuana uh, uh, regulatory structure in place that has, you know, enforcement mechanisms and stuff. It's all in the Memo uh, amendment that was renewed until September, so you know Trump didn't stop that. You know Trump acknowledged the difference between medical marijuana and adult use marijuana through Spicer at a press conference, right? And that's the first time. I mean, imagine if George Bush would have said, "Hey guys, there's medical marijuana. We need to treat it differently." You know, people would have been like, "Hurrah, hurrah, yay, yay!" You know, celebrate. Imagine if you know Obama would have said that at the beginning of his term or Bill Clinton, but they didn't. But now you actually have Donald Trump saying that, uh, saying that uh, medical marijuana is something separate than adult use marijuana, which to me, as an optimist, is a tremendous victory. Yeah, it is. Actually, um, and Obama did um, advocate for medical marijuana in a few interviews during his term, the second term. But, you know, what scares me a little bit right now... No, I meant at the very right beginning of his term, but yeah, oh, he yeah. eventually came around. Yeah, Absolutely. And it, it is exciting, you know, when you hear when you hear someone in that office talking about it. But then my I'm I'm very concerned because um, it seems that that Sessions doesn't you know, Jeff Sessions doesn't have the he doesn't seem as open to um, to the state laws. You know, he seems. Well, he, see, yeah, I mean, we can speculate. A lot of people speculate what Sessions might or may not believe or may or might or not do. But he's dealing with some really ugly realities that, from a, from a pragmatic standpoint, he can't do much because 
um, you know, California and Colorado, Colorado's a swing state, you know, um, California and Colorado are looking at laws and passing laws that defund federal uh, state agencies and state law enforcement agencies from helping federal agencies when they go and do a raid, for example. So the DEA is not going to do a raid in downtown Phoenix without notifying, to me, in downtown Los Angeles without notifying local law enforcement and working with them. You know, it's just not right. pragmatic for them to operate and do these big, you know, projects without local cooperation. Right. So that's going to be a big issue for him. Colorado is a, is a swing state. You know, Trump doesn't want to lose Colorado, and they like their, they love their adult use marijuana program. You know, Florida is 71% medical marijuana. You think Trump's going to mess with medical marijuana in Florida? Why? Why would he? Right. You know, what what benefit is there for him to do that? You know, so I think medical. They're probably trying to figure out some way to to defend medical while leaving adult use alone. They're, in their mind, that's what they're probably doing because, you know, they're pragmatists and they're realists and, and medical marijuana polls at 70, 80 percent, you know, across the United States. Yeah, and know? in some places and, uh, even more. Yeah, and yeah, some places even more. So, so I think they don't know what to do. And that's why we haven't heard anything from them, you know, because they can't really figure it out. You know, and, and, and I know this is kind of a states' rights thing and as well, and they like states' rights, and it's something kind of beyond their control. So they're just kind of, you know, laying back and doing nothing. You know? Great. And I, I think that's kind of a, a, in a sense, it's a great thing because the people will take over state by state and we'll get our medicinal marijuana programs. But in a sense, it still limits us from banking and a whole lot of other obstacles. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get through that in time. Um, it, it, it's okay, you know. Um, uh, it, it, I, I don't think the, there, there is, I do not think there's a massive crackdown coming on medicinal adult use marijuana in the United States. Yeah. That would just be insane. I mean, not with the actual evidence that's out there, that in the video evidence and the testimonial evidence that shows, uh, and the people like me who've experienced firsthand that, you know, it, it has medicinal, medicinal benefits. You know, and not, there's enough of people like me out there who don't come from a marijuana culture. I don't know what culture, what world you come from, but I came from an anti-marijuana culture. Yeah, me too. And now I'm 100, yeah. And now I'm 100% unequivocally empirical evidence to believe in the medical beneficial uses. And there's tens and hundreds of thousands of us now who have changed our minds. That doesn't mean we want to advocate for a culture where we have advertisements like we have for alcohol for marijuana. That's a whole different subject. Um, so, uh, so we, we don't know what's going to happen, but I, I wouldn't be concerned because in the end, the truth will come to light, right? Slowly but surely. Gandhi, <laughs> well, Gandhi said that there's one, there's one thing that even in my darkest, most negative moments, I just stop back and I relax and I breathe because I know eventually truth will come to light. Yeah. And the truth is it's a medicine. The truth is people have a right to it. And the truth is. Uh, it does stuff for people that works for them medicinally. So that's the truth. Oh, and that well, will eventually and, win. And the truth is our bodies are more receptive and um, it, our bodies are equipped to handle cannabis where our bodies are not equipped to handle synthetic pharmaceuticals as well. When you consider the discovery of the endocannabinoid system and all of the miraculous science around that and that you know, we've talked about on this show a number of times, but it's a whole different subject. But still, yeah. you know, it goes along with that. That's a truth. It is a truth. We have an right. endocannabinoid and, system. And as a, as a member of the industry, as an advocate for the industry, look, we have a $300, $400 million industry in Arizona. You know, as it expands medicinally, we'll have a $300, $800 million industry in Arizona. You know, if they, if they allowed for adult use and the, the advertising of adult use unconditionally unrestricted, it might go to a $1 billion industry. There's plenty of quote-unquote money to be made, but you have to remember as you have a duty to your state, you have a duty to your country as to what kind of world you want to live in. And let I me mean, ask you this. Do you want advertisers, adver the marijuana producers advertising it recreationally? You know, I mean, those are questions that the industry needs to ask itself as the industry pushes for certain laws and certain rules and certain regulations. And, and so I, I zealously push for medical marijuana. I zealously push for responsible medical marijuana education and protection and rights and expansion. 
And I kind of try to stay away from the adult use because there's people out there that, you know, want adult use, want to push it recreationally. And that's just not going to fly with, you know, the mainstream individuals and, and individuals recognize that even caffeine is a crutch. Right. And I, I couldn't agree with you more on that, um, Dimitri. Uh, we made a decision early on at the Cannabis Reporter to um, stay away from the social aspects, per se, of, of uh, marijuana use and focus on the side of it that is going to create change because most of you know our audiences, we, if we were talking about adult use um, exclusively or you know, most of the time, we would be preaching to the choir. And the reason we started The Cannabis Reporter, even as, you know, other uh, publications and outlets were were happening, you know, the we really intentionally go after the more conservative-minded individuals who are on the fence or completely opposed to marijuana. And I, I agree that when you're talking about recreational use and you're talking about, you know, the free the weed and, you know, peace and love in the park with a joint, you're really going to turn off those people who are on the fence. And it's so, it's so yeah. important for people who truly advocate for it to keep that in mind, you know, and, and when they go to a, a meeting or to a rally or to speak with their Congress people or whatever, Dress the part, appeal to them and their mentality and their uh, position on this in order to, you know, help with the change. I mean, I, I agree with that 100%. Well, if I worked for the Trump administration, that's what I would do. I would stand up there and I would say what I know to be real. And mm -hmm. I would say marijuana is a medicine. The, the government has no business in the doctor-patient relationship. And the government has no business deciding whether or not you go to a shaman, a rasta man, eastern man, or a western man. Okay, so what does that mean at that point? So that's my little three-legged stool of marijuana policy. Right. That means that any individual can go to any doctor that they want to, or, or grandmother. And grandmother might say, hey, you know, we might want to try medicinal marijuana, this herb, for your back pain. Right. You know, whoever it is they get their recommendation from. That means they can choose to use it any way they want to, whenever they want to, without fear of prosecution. But then on top of that stool is what I call, and this is the compromise that I think that America will one day recognize, and Trump would recognize, and Trump should push, is as, as on top of that stool is the banning of the messaging of marijuana as a recreational substance. I'm talking about skipping over like 70 years of tobacco history. I'm talking about getting where we need to get with alcohol. You know, somebody right now asked me as an ex-prosecutor, would it be a good idea to ban the messaging that alcohol is a recreational thing? I would say, hell yeah, that would be a good idea. But we won't be able to do that because they have too much money and they're not going to let us. You see what I'm right. saying? Yeah. But if we, if we tone down the alcohol in our society, it would be a better place. So if, if Donald Trump were to say that, say, okay, I can allow for medicinal use, unrestricted, individuals can medicate any way they want to, whether their grandma tells them to or their medicine man or their Western doctor, they can medicate by choice. If that's freedom, that, that allows people to choose when they use it, and then stop the messaging. And then we would grow up in a society where people use marijuana like aspirin or Tylenol or any other easily available herbal remedy that's out there that we don't necessarily use but we certainly can choose to use if we want to. But you really want to, you know, grow up and you want your kids to grow up in a society that's being, that where they're being told that they need to use anything in particular to live a better life. And it creates wants that are false and imagined, right. whether it's caffeine or marijuana or anything else. And that's what we should be careful of, not just with marijuana, but with anything. So we can stop it now. We can make the compromise that works for the patients, for the people, and for the government. But I'm not Donald Trump, and hopefully he yeah. might listen to this radio station. Hear me. Let me come up and save you a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but people get this, though. People get this, though. They're, they're banning billboard advertising in California, which right. is fine. You know, people, people can go and do what they want to do, but you don't need to push it. Right. You know? Well, you know, technically, it's against the law to advocate um, use of recreational, uh, or rec it's, ad it's illegal to advocate 
uh, recreational use of marijuana anywhere in the United States as long as it's federally um, a Schedule One controlled substance simply because of the um, FTC and uh, FCC rules that state you cannot publicly broadcast an incitement to commit a crime. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, it, I probably did. I probably, my, my, my philosophy and my approach doesn't probably do much for your advertising dollars. Sorry. <laughs> I know, exactly. But, you know, the, the truth is, though, um, I think that people do need to learn about, um, about uh, products and what they can do on a medical basis. And we do have advertisers who uh, work in the field of medical marijuana. And one of our biggest sponsors is, is Hemp Meds. And, um, you know, they obviously have hemp products that are medicinal and, you know, with patients all over the country. You know, something else, too, that I find amusing, um, it, it, that's a strange way to say it, but it is amusing to me, that in states where they haven't passed any medical marijuana laws and they state on the books that hemp medicine is illegal in those states. So there are 21 states that haven't passed medical marijuana laws um, yet. And, you know, CBD is technically something that the states actually believe, a lot of people in the states actually believe, is illegal. But people can get it anywhere. It's legal, according to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which upheld a ruling that that made hemp stock and and oils extracted from hemp to be a food substance that is legal. We can import it. We can buy it anywhere in the United States. We can buy it online in in one state and have it shipped to another. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't even know that. But yeah, oh. yeah, I've 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 learned a lot about hemp CBD. In the last couple of years, I didn't really understand what was going on with that. Certainly, we never prosecuted it. <laughs> right, right. So. Well, and it has been prosecuted a lot in the past, you know, but it's actually perfectly legal. So, so um, our producer Craig just gave us the um, two-minute warning. Is there anything? Yeah. Is there anything else that you know you'd like to add? No, just uh, you know, let everybody know about the SEC Expo, SECC Expo in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Miami this weekend, uh, the 9th, 10th, 11th. Then, of course, in October we have the SWCC Expo, and uh, just look online and uh, come join us and, and ask questions. And even if they don't come to our conference, go to another conference and start getting the framework together so that they can become part of this uh, this fascinating world of creating an economic structure and legalizing uh, medicinal marijuana and potentially what they refer to as adult use uh, across the board, you know? It's, uh, it's going to get even more interesting every every year. It does that, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll put information about the conference um, on our website. I have a, a number of ads up for... Um, you know, to promote the conference because, I mean, it really, I think if anyone who is going to be in Florida, it's a, it'll be a great opportunity to learn a lot more and, you know, spread the word. So, Dimitri, I'm so grateful that you could make it and I know you are so busy and I'm really excited to hear, I wish I could be in Florida um, with you there, but I'll definitely be with you in uh, Phoenix in October. So I just want to say thank you so much. Yeah, I always like to give out my phone number because I, I don't like to live in the dark. And if I'm wrong, they need to call me and tell me. Well, maybe I probably should give my phone number. <laughs> but uh, but uh, please, you know, DimitriDowning at gmail.com, D-E-M-I-T-R-I, Downing at gmail.com. Anybody email me anytime they want to, anything I should learn. I'm, I'm always looking to learn more and discuss things. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, well, I'll be in touch with you for sure, um, and I, I'm looking forward to hearing how it goes um, at this event, and uh, really looking forward to seeing if you'll be able to get Bernie Sanders to speak out on this issue, because I know he's also an advocate, and it would be amazing to hear his point of view and uh, plans for the future, so... Oh. All right, cool. Yeah. Cool. Call me anytime. I'm available to you anytime you want. Thank you, Dimitri. Time to say goodbye. 
Oh, okay. what a great show. Really appreciate the input of our guest, Dimitri Downing, and we're grateful for his insights and knowledge. If you want to learn more about the work that he's doing or about the conference, um, please visit us at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episode. I'll post his bio and information there. Also, many thanks to our engineer today, Craig, and the team here at Star Worldwide Networks for always making us shine. We are grateful. I'd also like to say thank you to Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, HempMeds.com and HealthCare. We really could not be doing this without you, so thank you very much. Last but not least, thank you to all of you for listening around the nation. Tune in again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Every greatest calling, every greatest soul.